On this week's 51%, we speak with Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram and Army veteran Mel Emzer Herbert about their new book to lift up the voices of transgender service members. Who served despite the barriers that were in place and they just wanted to be a part of the military to serve their country and really to leave the world a better place. And WAMC's Ashley Hupfel takes us to a ceremony honoring living veterans in Albany, New York, coming up on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on, I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh leader. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jesse King. November 11th is Veterans Day, and thanks to the COVID-19 vaccine, many communities were able to resume their ceremonies and festivities for the first time since the start of the pandemic. Here in Albany, the Veterans Day Parade was back in full force as it made its way down Central Avenue. So today we've got a trio of stories and interviews centered around women in the military and the range of issues veterans of all genders face. In New York, Governor Kathy Hochul recently signed a package of bills meant to support veterans and their families, but a bipartisan group of lawmakers are still hoping the governor will commit to full funding for a program that helps veterans coping with PTSD. Capitol correspondent Karen DeWitt reports. Senator Sue Serino, a Republican, and Assemblymember D.D. Barrett, a Democrat, say the program, known as the Joseph P. Dwyer Veterans Peer Support Program, or vet to vet has been considered a success by veterans who've used it. It offers non-clinical support and assistance for veterans who are struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic brain injury, or other mental health challenges. The program is named after Dwyer, who lost his life to PTSD. Despite the positive outcomes and relatively small price tag of around $5 million, Senator Serino says veterans groups and their supporters in the legislature have had to lobby to get the money included in the state budget. She says that's because the previous governor, Andrew Cuomo, consistently left the program out of his executive budget proposal. Each year, despite the program's stunning success rate, our veterans are forced to travel to Albany to advocate for funding for the program every single budget season. Michelle Noonan is one of the veterans who recounted how the program helped her overcome some of the darkest days of her life. If it wasn't for the Vets and Vet program, I wouldn't be here today. But suffice it to say, it's been a couple of years and now I'm able to help other veterans because the family that I have with Vets and Vet and everything they've done for me over the years has just given me purpose and a place where I know I won't be mocked for having PTSD. Serino and Barrett are asking Governor Hochul to include the money in her state budget proposal due in January. A spokesperson for Hochul did not commit to putting the money in the executive budget, but promised to work with stakeholders and the legislature during the upcoming budget process to address the needs of veterans across the state.
The governor did announce that in honor of the holiday, she signed into law several bills affecting veterans. They include a change to the official date of the Vietnam War from February 28, 1961 to November 1, 1955, to help veterans serving in the conflict before 1961 become eligible for benefits. Another allows spouses of people in the military to receive unemployment benefits if they have to leave their job and move because their partner has received a military transfer. Other new laws provide in-state tuition at public New York State and city universities for students if their parents are active-duty military newly stationed in the state. And a bill signed by the governor also establishes a Women Veterans Advisory Committee. It will offer guidance to the Division of Veterans Services. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. Our next guests are the editors of a new book with New York University Press titled With Honor and Integrity, Transgender Troops in Their Own Words. When the U.S. repealed its don't ask, don't tell policy on gay, lesbian and bisexual members of the military in 2011, it notably left out members of the transgender community. Now, there are varying numbers on just how many transgender service members there are in the U.S. A 2014 study by the Williams Institute at UCLA put the number over 15,000. A 2016 workplace survey cited by the Department of Defense reported 9,000, and a 2018 analysis by the Palm Center once again raised it to about 14,700. But that's at least partially because the military's stance on transgender service members has been in flux over the past several years particularly. In 2016, then-President Barack Obama's Secretary of Defense, Ashton Carter, announced a new policy allowing transgender people to serve openly and obtain access to gender-affirming medical and psychological care. But just over a year later, then-President Donald Trump moved to reverse that in a series of tweets, stating, quote, The United States government will not accept or allow transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the U.S. military, end quote. This was reversed again by President Joe Biden earlier this year. So for now, transgender people can enlist, serve openly, and get the care that they need. But like everything, their status has been caught in politics. Bree Fram is a lieutenant colonel openly serving as a transgender woman in the Space Force, making her the highest-ranking transgender officer in the U.S. military. She's also the president of SPARTA, an advocacy group dedicated to transgender service members. And before her role at the Space Force, she served with the Air Force in Iraq. Mel Emser Herbert is a veteran of the Army and a sociology professor at Hamlin University in St. Paul, Minnesota. They're the author of books like The U.S. Military's Don't Ask, Don't Tell Policy, a Reference Handbook, and have long focused on issues involving gender and sexuality in the military. In October 2017, I had the opportunity to go to a little film festival here in the Twin Cities, and one of the films that was shown was about transmilitary service, and I'm, I was watching it, and in that time, we'd had the 2016 announcement of inclusive service and then the 2017 tweets saying, no, go away. And I sat there thinking, what have people done? Here we've had 13 months where people made decisions, changed lives, and now we're like, no, 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 you can't do that. And there was a, an openly trans captain in the Minnesota National Guard who made a few comments after the film. And I just thought, I wanna find out how people are dealing with this shifting terrain. 
So I decided that I would see if I could even conduct a few interviews. And so I cast the net out there and Brie was one of the folks that responded. So I did some interviews and published that as a journal article, but I wanted to do something else. And I knew that I didn't want to do traditional sociological research that made the trans service members kind of the object of my gaze or my inquiry. So I kept toying with it and longer story short, decided that this was the project that I wanted to pursue where I could perhaps be the mechanism by which trans military personnel could tell their own stories. So we have 26 contributors in the book. So stories ranging from veterans who served in the Vietnam era to many of our service members who are still serving today. So there's a wide range of stories that we've captured in this book. So when you're putting together this book, what are you hearing from service members? One of the biggest things you can take away from these stories is how there is no one way to be trans. There is no one way to be trans in the military. It is the uniqueness of the individuals and the uniqueness of their stories that really stand out. Some are funny, some are poignant, some are sad and and even heartbreaking to a point at what some of these folks have been through. But all of them to me are inspiring at these folks who served despite the barriers that were in place and they just wanted to be a part of the military to serve their country and really to leave the world a better place. The book's title draws from the military's values of honor and integrity, but for trans members, they've had to conceal their identity for some or all of their service. For you, Brie, how were you able to balance your service with your need to be who you are? So my experience as a transgender service member is just one of many. But overall, we can say that the general reaction to people coming out is a positive one. While the argument out there that trans people coming out and being part of the service will degrade unit cohesion, that's proven wrong over and over again by the reception that people get. When I came out, uh, it was when the Secretary of Defense finished speaking to announce an open service policy in 2016. uh, And I had an email ready to go to my colleagues and a Facebook post to the world. And though I was nervous, I hesitated, I hit send, I hit post, uh, and wondering what the reaction was gonna be, I fled. I went to the gym in the basement of the Pentagon, burned out the motor on an elliptical machine going incredibly fast, nowhere. Uh, But when I got back to my desk, one by one, my colleagues walked over to me, shook my hand and said, it's an honor to serve with you. So that's just one of the incredible reactions that some of us have received you know, for being open, for being authentic, that really adds something to the team. It doesn't take away from it. For you both, what was it that made you want to join the military? It was 9-11 that changed my life and changed the trajectory of of where I was headed. I had just graduated school, uh, college in in 2001, and I was looking for jobs uh, when we were attacked. And that absolutely changed my worldview to something where I wanted to give back. I wanted to be a part of something greater than myself to defend all the amazing things that I'd been given. So a few days after the September 11th attacks, I was driving from my home at the time in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area to my then girlfriend, now wife's place in Duluth, Minnesota. And I saw an American flag hanging from an overpass about halfway on that drive, and I broke down. I was just crying through the remaining hour of that drive. 
But when I got to her place, I walked in and said, I'm going to join the Air Force. Uh, and it was a great decision then. I've been able to do some incredible things, and I'm so honored for what I've been able to do on behalf of this country. Uh, it's been an amazing experience. Well, I joined in an entirely different era. We were still in the Cold War, so way, way back. And honestly, um, I was in college at a time when, unlike today, universities didn't spend any time talking with you about what you might do with your, your degree, that kind of thing. And growing up, I had always wanted to do something tied to law enforcement. And I knew a lot of, I was at, in school in Washington, DC, so I, I knew a lot of military folks. And I realized that I could be in the military police corps. And so that was an avenue to do something in law enforcement at a time when there weren't a lot of opportunities in the civilian sector. So I graduated and signed up. What are some of the things that you remember most or take away from your service? So maybe my, my craziest memory was back in 2004 when I deployed as part of Operation Iraqi Freedom. And I got to the base where we were at in, in Iraq and it was my first night there. And I, I go into the tent uh, to try and get some sleep. And in the middle of the night, the air raid sirens start going off because the base is under attack from, from mortars. And I look around and no one is doing anything. Uh, and I'm like, oh my God, should I roll out of bed? Should I get under it? Should I put my body armor on? What, what should I do? No one does anything. So I just go back to sleep. And I asked the question of my tent mates in the morning, like, why is that? And they're like, well, these attacks are so quick. They're so fast. By the time the air raid siren goes off, the attack is over. So if you're not dead or screaming, just go back to sleep. Do what you need to do to get ready for the next day and the mission that we have. Uh, so a crazy experience that will always stick with me. Wow. I've not heard that story before. Well, having served in peacetime, I, you know, of course, don't have those experiences. And, and to be honest, um, I typically say that as someone who was serving as a female person at, in, you know, in a long time ago, I have a real love-hate relationship with a lot of what I experienced because things were pretty darn bad for women in the late 70s, early 80s um, in the military. That said, um, after I got off active duty and was in the reserves, I attended officer candidate school at Fort Benning which is sometimes known as Benning School for Boys because of its history. And to go through that program and receive my commission, not through some of the alternative paths that are out there, but through OCS on active duty was, is still a pretty big thing for me to, to realize that I did, especially when you consider that I did that in the mid eighties when it was a very different climate from today. Brie, you mentioned that when you came out, the people you worked with were very supportive. As you spoke with other individuals for this book, is that generally what you were hearing? Was there more acceptance among rank and file members compared to the administration? So I will say that my experience is certainly filtered through my privilege as someone who's white, someone who's a senior officer, working in a nerdy career field, then in the Air Force, now in the Space Force. But even those younger troops who may be an African-American or a Latino infantryman in the Army or the Marines, as a general rule, positive coming out experiences, because what we're valued for is what we contribute to the mission. And if you're doing that, you're a valued member of the team. And that's not to say, though, that there are some people that have had negative experiences. There have been, they happen, they continue to happen. 
And it's incumbent on us through sharing stories like are in this book to change that culture, to make for a better culture of diversity, inclusion, and importantly, you know, tapping into everyone's potential within the military so we can all be better. What was it like when then-President Trump launched those tweets in 2017? What effect did that have within the transgender community? Well, that's a big question because that was a crazy, crazy day. Uh, and honestly, the first thought that went through my head when my phone started blowing up that morning with texts and tweets and, and all sorts of crazy stuff is, are we at war? Uh, because I was trying to figure out what was what was going on. And But when you find out, oh, the president's just trying to ban trans people from serving, then your mind immediately goes to, why? What, what prompted this? And then it goes to, what now? Uh, do I have a job tomorrow? And the best thing that any of us could do the next day was to lace up our boots and get the job done and do so over and over again until we were dragged kicking and screaming from the service that we loved so much and that we had dedicated our lives to. But in a weird way, I look back and I say thank you to President Trump because he's shown a spotlight on our service that had never been there before. When he tweeted about 50% of the American public and 50% of the military was in favor of transgender people serving. Less than two months later, because of that media spotlight, because of a drill sergeant who happened to be transgender in People Magazine and a transgender military couple on The Ellen Show and so many other people getting their stories out there, that opinion changed dramatically going up to 70% of both the American public and the military in just two months. Within two years, it was in the high 80%. So crazy to think that that swung so fast, so dramatically, all thanks to the president claiming we were a burden on the service and us getting the opportunity to show just how wrong he was. Do things feel better now? So there certainly is that fear that some people have that we can go from administration to administration and we can flip the switch because all that it takes is an executive order, which is why to me it's so important that there be a law that gives the opportunity to serve to all people, regardless of gender identity or other characteristics, where as long as they can meet the criteria that the military needs for you to serve, that the opportunity should be there to do so. So that's really important as we go forward to add a little stability into our service members' lives. And I would just echo that because last week when we had the elections and there was a lot of the media coverage was, you know, all focused on the Democrats and the failures and so forth. And then, of course, we start hearing about, well, the midterms are coming. And if you start looking at a lot of the coverage of elections, even local elections, and you start thinking forward, I was actually replaying Brie in my head saying exactly this, that as long as this is not codified in law, people will remain vulnerable with a switch of leadership. How is the path toward acceptance for trans service members similar or different from that of women, African-Americans, and LGB members? And is there anything else that can be done to support trans service members right now? Well, one of the things that I have said for years, and it is sometimes um, a contentious point, is that while those groups are not the same, the arguments that have been deployed to attempt to keep people out or to successfully keep them out have been very, very similar. And we saw them change with African-Americans and change with women and change with LGB people. And each time along the way, 
the things that were predicted as, oh my gosh, the sky is falling, simply did not materialize. And so I do think that there's, uh, although, you know, I am by nature, and I, I joke with my students, say, no one's ever accused me of saying the glass was half full. But I look at what's happened in the past and find myself saying, we have to have learned something. And in fact, specific arguments like unit cohesion, which we've seen debunked time and time again, are much, much harder for people to make. And honestly, I think we've seen um, less of an effort by what I'll loosely call the opposition to latch on to those arguments because they simply know they don't hold up. Now, the one that often is brought up is the medical and the cost issue. But for transgender service members, it's the same as it is for every other service member, where there is a compact between the Department of Defense and its service members that all medically necessary care will be provided to ensure you are your most capable and your most ready for your wartime mission. And that's exactly what we are providing to transgender service members where something has been determined to be medically necessary by a doctor, that care is provided, and that service member is then both a better individual and a better contributor to their team. And if you look at the flip side, if we were to deny care, then you're inviting a whole host of other problems that in the long run may end up costing the department and the country more. Time is one of the biggest things that we have on our side. Whereas today we would look back and think of a military without African-Americans, women, lesbians, gays, bisexuals, you know, that would be unconscionable. How could we possibly have a military without any of those groups? And I would hope that it'll be the same with transgender people, that after a little bit of time, it'll be just as unconscionable to imagine a military without us because we've had years to prove ourselves over and over again, simply by showing up and getting the job done every day here at home and around the world. Just in general, what else can we do to better support our veterans? Well, I mean, and I don't say this in a self-serving way, but I mean, read the stories, read the book, you know, see what it is that people are contributing. You know, it's not just about a snapshot of, oh, this happened to me or what have you, but really look and see people's commitment. I'm in academia, so not to throw stereotypes around, but you can imagine that I talk to more than a few people who are like, military, really? And you know the thing is, when they they just scratch the surface, they they're so moved by what it is that people have chosen to do and the commitment they've made to the to their service. So I just think that whether it's through the book or some other mechanism, you know, really familiarizing oneself with people as individuals who have real lives and not just attending to sound bites and and you know snippets and such. Yeah, one of the big things that is going on to support veterans right now is the VA is reviewing its policies for how to provide transgender care, particularly surgical care. That's a huge deal to our, our transgender veterans. And if you look historically, trans people have served at twice the rate of their cisgender counterparts. So there are a lot of transgender veterans out there and being able to access that medically necessary care uh, because of their service uh, that's going to be a huge boon to them. Uh, but just, again, respect them for their stories and all that they've done for all of us. Lastly, Brie, I'd just like to ask you a little bit about the Space Force, because it sounds pretty cool to me. What kind of work are you doing there, and what made you want to join it? So I am uh, an acquisition officer working at the Pentagon. The Space Force uh, as a whole has to continue on the proud legacy of all the space missions that have come out of the Department of Defense up till now. You know, maintaining the capability that we have to provide GPS service, which underpins 
every car trip we take. And it's not just that, but the Space Force has to prepare for when conflict inevitably moves into space. How do we prepare ourselves to defend those capabilities, to provide the support that the rest of our armed services need if they get into conflict somewhere? And then how do we fight in space when someone goes to mine an asteroid? How do we protect and defend them? Uh, so there's a lot of really cool concepts that we have to start thinking about, but more exciting is just being part of a new service getting that opportunity to help set the culture for a true 21st century military, one that does value every individual for what they can contribute and enables them to reach their full potential. So the opportunity to be part of a new service doesn't come around more than every several generations. Uh, that's awfully exciting to me. Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram and Mel Emser Herbert are the editors behind With Honor and Integrity, Transgender Troops in Their Own Words, out now on New York University Press. You can learn more about the book at nyupress.org and more about Sparta at spartapride.org. Bree Fram and Mel Emser Herbert, thank you both so much for taking the time. We're going to close out today's episode by recognizing some veterans here in Albany, New York. Leading up to Veterans Day, two veterans were honored at the city's biannual Honor a Living Veteran Ceremony. WAMC's Ashley Hupful was there. The ceremony Thursday at Crossgates Mall included a crowd of veterans, friends, and family members who came to recognize Penny Lee Deer and Hartley Willie Williams. Deere is a 65-year-old veteran who enlisted in the Army at age 19 and served in the Gulf War. After her active duty, she founded Mind, Body, Soul, Penny, Support Our Troops, Arts for Vets, and Listening Library, all of which are programs to help veterans after service. Williams, 87, enlisted in the Air Force at 19 and served in the Korean War. Known as Willie, he participated in airborne electronics navigation equipment repair during his service and moved to Antigua, where he was the Rotary president. He returned to Albany County to retire with his wife. The ceremony hosted by Albany County included a flag ceremony when a color guard raises and lowers the flags before and after the event. Elected officials thanked the two honorees for their service. When Deere first enlisted, she was in the Women's Army Corps before it integrated into the Army in 1978. It was from 1975 to 1995, and I was in Desert Storm, uh, Desert Shield, but I also am kind of like a living fossil in that I was went through all the Cold War watching uh, Soviet Union dissolve and um, making sure that that's all. Uh, and then we went on to Desert Storm and, and they changed the enemy on me. She first started in the Army's post office before transferring into intelligence work. She was stationed in Arizona. They needed intelligence. And so I reclassified to something, it's a military, um, 
order of battle, it was called back then, an intelligence analyst, and that's a collaborative of bringing all the different intelligences together. It might be imagery, humans, where we're actually talking to people, um, SIGINT, listening to people, command and control. And so my job was to take all that information, put the puzzle together, and tell the commander, in, in this case it was 7th Corps Commander, uh, General Franks, um, what he can expect on his battlefield. Even after leaving the military, service members remained on her mind. She founded several organizations to help veterans acclimate to civilian life. So many of our returning veterans have trouble reintegrating into our community. And I believe it's because they don't have a mission, they don't have a reason for being. I know that with Arts for Vets, for instance, Support Our Troops Committee, that is my mission. I start at five o'clock in the morning and I tell them that this is what we're gonna do today or this is what we're gonna do in six months. We have to prepare for this. I have a reason for being. And by me doing that, they see and then they now have their own tribe. They, only, they have their own collective. Democratic Albany County Executive Dan McCoy says he got the idea for honoring living veterans after attending so many ceremonies recognizing veterans posthumously. The Democrat and veteran says one of the hardest things he had to do when first elected was speak at such events. But when I started talking to men and women in the audience, and I'm like, oh, how'd you know the person? And they're like, I didn't. They helped me. They did something for me. And I'm like, well, that would have been nice if they're alive to hear that, you know, to know that people appreciate the influence they had on their life or helped them in the right direction. So after like the first two years, I'm like, I got to change this. At the first in-person ceremony since COVID-19 took hold, Deer added it was an honor to be recognized. I am overwhelmed. I asked for the chair because I'm like, my, my poor legs are going, um, it actually, I was supposed to be recognized two years ago, and then right before the pandemic, it was um, all closed down. This is Ashley Helpful for WAMC News. Thanks for listening to this week's 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. It's produced by me, Jesse King. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok, and our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. A big thanks to Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram, Mel Emser-Herbert, Karen DeWitt, and Ashley Hopeful for contributing to this week's episode. To learn more about our guests and the show in general, check us out at wamcpodcast.org. Next week, we meet some of the journalists, writers, and filmmakers selected for this fall's Logan Nonfiction Program. But until then, I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl. I was nobody else. I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half. He was a hollow laugh. And I lost my cool somewhere along the way. The night on the hallway. My cool, no electricity, hot rain on the concrete, sweet melting little girl dreams. They said, Oh, I want a big life, not a house that could have been like. Where are you taking me? Where are you taking me?